Thank you. It is indeed my joy and privilege. However, I am suspicious about Rob. <laughs> Which uh, we pause the recording. And I know, I know this is not true, but I can't help the suspicions that he gives me the most difficult texts. <laughs> and I've said that before, and today proves it again. And I know it's not true because he's going through the lectionary, right? So, anyway, uh, and thank you, Jeff, for that song, one of the great hymns of the church of the ages, and, and in, in beautiful poetry and melody, that song says what we're going to talk about today, Son of God and Son of Man. And we're going to get that out of the Transfiguration passage. Uh, a Transfiguration passage seems to be like a show of David Copperfield in Vegas. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's something that, that as we read, we don't quite understand. We're not sure what this is and, and why is it here in Scripture. So at the end of the sermon, I hope that you'll have a clear understanding of the very nature of Jesus Christ. That he is God in human flesh, Son of God and Son of Man. So let's read that text. It follows directly after uh, the one that Wendy read. And it's Mark 9, beginning of verse 2 through, through 8. <clears throat> six days, and by the way, that six days is a very important uh, two words, because it's the only time in the book of Mark where he specifies a specific number of days. And what he's doing is he's wanting the people to know that what came right before is very, very important, because now it's just six days after that event. Six days later... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, that's his uh, executive committee of the disciples, and led them up to a high mountain apart, and by the way, that high mountain, since where this occurs, uh, or where the previous event, Caesarea Philippi, it's a lovely uh, spot in the northern, very northern part of Israel, right next to Lebanon. It's on the foothills of Mount Hermon, and it is a series of springs that come right out of the mountain. And you have this like 50-yard wide pool of water just flowing out of the mountain. And it's, it's a lovely place. Um, anyway, so that's where they were previously, and now six days later they came. Uh, the high mountain is probably Mount Hermon because it's the closest high mountain to them, the highest mountain in the Middle East. And so that's probably where they went. Nobody knows for sure. Uh, they went, uh, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. I've always wondered, what were they talking about? <laughs> but we don't get to know that. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a, crowd overshadowed, a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them, 
Only Jesus. The word of the Lord. So here we have the transfiguration story. And for us to understand it, we really need to know the back story. What's going on before this. And I had Wendy read that passage of scripture of Caesarea Philippi because that's the context in which this particular passage sits. At Caesarea Philippi, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, the one from God, and that story, which uh, Wendy read, uh, goes precedes the transfiguration. But the problem is, even when Peter confesses that you are the Messiah, the one sent from God, the anointed one, his theology and the rest of the disciples' theology is incomplete. It's faulty because they don't have a full understanding of the identity of Jesus. Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? First of all, he said, who do people say that I am? Some say a prophet, some say Elijah. Then he says, all right, he got personal with them. And he says, all right, now, who do you say that I am? And Peter being the one that always spoke first, speaks up and he says, well, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus follows the question, that question and answer with the declaration that he, as the Messiah, must go to Jerusalem and die and then rise again. Now that's shocking to the disciples. In their mind, it's inappropriate for the Messiah to say that he is going to die. Messiahs don't die. Messiah's conquer. And they're thinking of the Messiah's coming as a great general who's going to come in and throw the oppressors out and bring peace and prosperity from then on. And so for them to hear him say, he is going to die, that's just not right. He can't do that. He's the Messiah. You see, they had a conventional, cultural, triumphalistic view of the Messiah. And so it was inadequate. It was a faulty understanding of who Jesus truly and really was and what he was going to do. This faulty theology is why the transfiguration is in our text, in, in Mark. What's in all, all four, uh, three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, which says it was a very important event. So this faulty theology is what the transfiguration addresses without saying so. So, the backstory, that's the beginning of the backstory, the context. And now, let me continue with that. Uh, first of all, let me remind you that this is revelation. This is God's doing. In fact, that's one of the things about this event. The mystical, magical sense of it tells us that this is about God's doing. This isn't something that somebody got with smoke and mirrors. This is God doing, and God is revealing something very important. So the true insight to the mysterious nature of Jesus is afforded to us in this text, but it doesn't come by human effort. It doesn't come by wisdom. It only comes by divine revelation. So it wasn't illusion. It wasn't sleight of hand. It was God communicating to his people. It is God's revelation by symbols that may be formed to us but they weren't foreign to the people that were reading this text for the first time. Now, when Mark wrote his gospel in the first century AD, there was no printing press. We're all aware of that. 
And so all of the scrolls had to be written longhand, and so it was very time-consuming and, and labor-intensive to write these out. So there weren't many copies. There was one, two, three copies at the most. And what they would do is they would take the scrolls on which the, the texts were written, and they would give them to a church. The church would read them in public worship. The Gospels were always meant to be read aloud in public, and they would be read in public worship, and the people would hear them. Now, the first readers or listeners to Mark's Gospel would have been Jewish, and they would have understood many of the symbols that had gone into this experience of the Transfiguration, because they are Old Testament symbols, and they would understand them. Now, the Romans, the Greeks, and we today, we have difficulty with them because it's not our culture. So God is revealing himself through symbols, and the people would understand them. So let's look at um, some of the symbols to help us understand the story. So that's a little bit of, of the, the background. It comes in the context of Christ, uh, Peter's confession of Jesus, and then the disciples not understanding uh, what he meant by going to Jerusalem to die, and also that it comes to us in symbols. And the most important thing is it's God's revelation. That's the background. Now, the symbols of the story. They went to a high mountain. Right away, the symbols begin. Mountains figure prominently in all of Scripture. Moses went up to Mount Sinai when he received the Ten Commandments, right? He did. Elijah also went to Mount Sinai and received a revelation. But he didn't have the, the light and power show that Moses got when he was on the mountain. Elijah heard the voice of God in a still, small voice. But he still heard the, the voice of God on a mountain. The temple was built on Mount Zion. Elijah battled the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. So mountains figure prominently in the Old Testament, also in Jesus' memory. He did the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he was tempted on a mountain. His passion was completed on Golgotha. So mountains are important in Scripture both old and new, and they are places of revelation. The ancients would often build their temples on mountains. Why? Because it's closer to God, and so they then can hear from God on the mountaintop. They always went to the high place to worship. So mountains are important, and so in this revelation that we have in the transfiguration, Jesus chooses to do it on a mountain. That's the first symbol. It tells us that this is a revelation from God. The next symbol is the appearance of Jesus' clothing. It changes. Clothes become dazzling white. It says nobody can bleach them whiter than this. Not even tide can make them this, this uh, white. His appearance changes. Why? To correspond with his very nature. The brilliance and diaphanous Nature of his garments signify a total transformation with unity with the divine presence. So God is saying, in the presence of, of the, the um, garments and you know the look of Jesus on his face, God is saying, 
in a dazzling appearance that Jesus is just like God. He has all of the qualities. This is, this is what God looks like. So the clothing changes. Another symbol. Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus and begin to talk to him. Now they are a symbol of many, many things, but certainly they are witnesses to the completion of the revelation of God and the continuation of that, that there's a continuity between what they did and said and what this person Jesus is doing and saying. So they are both symbols of the prophetic witness, just as Jesus was the last great prophet. Both received God's revelation, now they're witness to the final and complete revelation of God in Jesus. Many say that Moses represents the law, and he does, because he is considered the lawgiver, and that Elijah represents the prophets, and Jesus is certainly the last great prophet. So both of these are accurate. They represent the law and the prophets. All of the Old Testament is represented here at the Transfiguration. But I believe that the meaning goes a bit deeper in this particular text. And it is this. Both Moses and Elijah are deliverers. Remember, Moses was the one who led the Israelites out of Egypt in the Exodus, delivered from 400 years of slavery and taking them through the, the, the uh, Sinai Peninsula to the Promised Land. Elijah, he delivered Israel from the prophets of Baal. The story is that on Mount Carmel, again, a mountain, that Elijah decided, because uh, King Asa and Jezebel had turned the country into worshippers of Baal, which was a pagan uh, fertility god, and the people were worshipping Baal instead of Yahweh, and so Elijah proposes a contest, a competition, and he says to the prophets of Baal, 200 of them, he says, let's have a contest. You build out of stone an altar, put wood on it, put a sacrificial animal on it, and then you pray to Baal and ask him to consume it with fire. They agree to the contest, they build their altar, they put the wood on it, and the sacrificial animal, they begin to pray, and they pray to God in loud voices for almost an entire day, asking that Baal would come and consume the wood and the sacrificial animal. And nothing happens. And then Elijah builds an altar of stone, puts the wood on it, puts the sacrificial animal. And then before he prays, he says to the people that are with him, that are following him, to go with your skins and get water. And they went and got water and poured it onto this altar that he built, all over the, the animal, all over the wood. And then he says, do it again. Second time, he goes, they go and get water and they pour it until it's completely drenched. And then he prays to God that God will send fire to consume the sacrifice. And God does. Elijah delivered the people of Israel from the worship of Baal. <coughs> they turned that to the worship of God. So I believe that this is about deliverance. They are both deliverers from Israel. Uh, they were deliverer of Israel 
And together they stand with Jesus as a witness to him as the final, complete, ultimate deliverer. So the symbol of Elijah and Moses being there is law and the prophets, but also deliverance. And then another symbol, a great cloud, encompasses the three of them. And the cloud in Scripture is often a symbol of God's presence and glory. And they, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, God told them to take skins and build a great tent. And it's called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And that's where they would worship. And when they first built that tent and began to worship there, it was filled with a cloud called the Shekinah glory. It is the, the glory of God that's being displayed there in the cloud. That's what happened when Moses on Mount Sinai received the Ten Commandments. He too was enveloped in a cloud. And then when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, on the day of dedication, cloud fills the temple, showing that this is where God lives. This is where God dwells. God is present here. His glory is here. So we have this event, and a great cloud comes over it to say, God is present, and his glory is being manifested in what's happening here today. The same kind of language, only in Greek, is used at the Annunciation. When the angel of the Lord came to Mary and announced to her that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, the wording there reads this way, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Overshadow there means a great cloud will engulf you. Same kind of language. The glory and the presence of God is there. And so the cloud is showing that this isn't something that somebody is doing that's human. This is a divine act. God is present. So you gather all these symbols together and they present the truth that God was present revealing Jesus Christ as the true Son of God from heaven who brings deliverance. This transfiguration story is a momentary revelation of the divine in the human Jesus. So we come to the climax. We've seen the backstory. We've seen the symbols that are involved here. The climax of the story comes when the voice of God is heard. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Remember the words of, of came from a cloud again at Jesus' baptism. When John is baptizing Jesus at the Jordan River, the voice comes from heaven and says, You are my son, whom I loved, with whom I am well pleased. At his baptism, those words were spoken to Jesus. Here the words are spoken to the three disciples that are there. And then there's these three words added. This is my beloved son. You are my son whom I've loved. And he says to the disciples, listen to him. There's the climax. The declaration from heaven sets him apart and uniquely designates him as God's son. Only God the Father can impart the mystery of Jesus, the divine nature, to the believers. The disciples haven't come to this recognition of Jesus as God's Son 
on their own. In fact, it's the rest of them haven't even gotten there yet. They're still thinking, oh, Jesus was Messiah. He can't possibly go to death. But now Peter, James, and John are getting the, the story correct. They're starting to have their theology changed. They're beginning to understand the nature of God and God's work in the world, that it isn't a human accomplishment. It is done by God, and this is God in human flesh among them. Faith is our assent to the truth that what has been revealed to us apart from what it cannot be known. That we cannot know revelation. Just like we can't know a person unless they reveal themselves to us. If we have somebody that we're acquainted with and we, we want to know them but they never open themselves to us, they're not in any way vulnerable, then we can't know them. Yeah, we can observe their behaviors and and hope to interpret what that means with their life, but those behaviors often are ambiguous. And we don't know the motives behind any behaviors. And so if they don't open themselves to us, we can't know them. Same thing is true with the divine. If God doesn't come and reveal himself to us, then we have no knowledge of God. Everything else, even nature, even the signs of God in nature are ambiguous. And so it's difficult unless God speaks to us in revelation. And so God has opened himself to us, providing this show, the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, and he says, I am in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully to his voice, and you will hear me. And you will know me. The injunction, listen to me, is necessary for the disciples to grasp the one point that they cannot accept, that the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, must suffer. Jesus is not only the prophet who follows in the footsteps of Moses, Moses and Elijah, but he's also the Son of God who must suffer and die. And what Jesus is doing is he's calling his disciples to share in his sufferings. For Jesus and his disciples, the road to glory leads through the valley of suffering. And as his disciples, we will suffer as our Lord did. There's no avoiding suffering. It's part of discipleship. If we call ourselves a follower of Jesus Christ, there will be, and I hope not in any grand scale, or any grand scheme, but in subtle ways, there's suffering that comes in being a disciple of Christ. But the story doesn't end on this ominous note. The climax has happened, but now we come to the end of the story. Jesus stands alone with his disciples. Elijah and Moses are gone. The cloud is gone. And disciples, in their bewilderment and their terror, look and they see Jesus standing with them. That's the end of the story. He remains with them to complete his journey to Jerusalem. The one who calls them to follow him through the valley of suffering 
doesn't abandon them for glory, but he turns from glory, shining in white brilliance, to accompany them on the way to Jerusalem and to the cross and beyond to the resurrection. The disciples aren't expected to go it alone in hard, suffering discipleship. And precisely where they hear the gospel, where they see both the glory of God and their own inadequacies, there they see Jesus standing with them. You don't travel this road of discipleship alone. You don't journey through the valley of suffering by yourself. You don't walk the road of discipleship that leads you to the cross unaccompanied. Jesus is with you. He goes before you. And never forget that he walked through the valley of the shadow of death and went to death, but then was resurrected. So he knows his way through the valley of suffering, but was triumphant, and so walks with you, leading you. So you're never alone. So it's imperative that we take the ending of the story seriously. Listen to him. Listen to him. In your private prayers, in your scripture reading, in public worship, in the events of the day, in the movies you see, the conversations you have, listen, for Christ is present.